All right, Flight Suit Friday podcast listeners, welcome, welcome, welcome. We got an awesome show for you today. Every day is a good day for aviation, so uh, let's go ahead and kick it off. Yeah, that's, I'm excited. Let's do this. All right, greetings listeners. Sam Hafenstein speaking here. Just a couple uh, quick updates. News for the fleet. Um, ATC just had priority one come out and uh, do a week-long swift water uh, rescue training with the 60s and the 65s. Mac Isom and Ryan Vanaheim, the 65 cent uh, side went out and then uh, Joe Chevalier and Jess Wright on the 60. So they're just uh, practicing learning techniques and eventually it's going to be incorporated into uh, a new chapter of the TTP, the SAR TTP that we've been working on. So in addition, uh, uh, this is for Dusty Williams, CI SAR or critical uh, incident search and rescue, I think it is, or no, catastrophic, I don't know. Yeah, Ur- 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 Urban SAR. Ur- Urban SAR, okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, so anyways, that's, that's going to be incorporated into there. Uh, and another cool update is that uh, this past uh, spring, AHARS had added an extra student week as a beta test. And uh, we are moving through and, and almost done with the approval process from Forcecom. So we're going to be seeing an extra week for students in both the fall and spring sessions of AHARS, which is great. That just means that uh, hopefully more people will be able to get out there and do this in their career. That's great. Fantastic. All right. We'll start with some shout outs. Got some awesome SAR cases uh, going around the fleet. The first one we're going to start off with is a Humboldt Bay crew. So there's an 80-foot wooden schooner that's disabled about 70 nautical miles uh, off of Crescent City. Apparently, the winds were like over 50 knots, 15 to 20-foot seas. Pretty standard weather for Humboldt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was daytime, so at least they had that oh, going God. for them. Thank God. But uh, So there's one person injured, head injury. So they launched the 65 out of Humboldt. They get on scene. I guess the winds and sea state were such that the uh, vessel was moving at like eight knots ground speed with without their sails up. So wow, they actually ended up putting the swimmer in. Miraculously, the swimmer was able to climb on board, package the uh, patient, and then they actually had to jump back into the water. They weren't able to make the hoist down to the vessel. So swimmer, patient jump into the water. Helo crew recovers them, flies back drops her off to EMS, goes back out and starts thinking about how they're going to get the rest of these people um, off. In the meantime, while that was happening, they also launched a 47. They had a C-27 on the way to help with comms and then a helo from Northman that came out as well. That's a big case. So yeah, big case. And helo gets back on scene and they're, they're talking to the crew like, hey, how are we going to get these people off? There's no way we can do a hoist to the vessel. So what they ended up doing is sitting right behind the vessel, kind of like a shadow position. They were doing a direct deployment and the swimmer was just sitting like 10 feet above the waterline. Person would jump off the boat. They would do a real quick direct. So it was quick. Person jumps off, get a little distance off the boat and the swimmer was right there to pick them up. And I think they picked up two or three people. At that time, the um, North Bend crew was coming in behind them. And so they picked up the remaining people. It's like Bobbing for apples with the rescue swimmer there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's great to see what our crews are doing, the on-scene initiative. You know, we, we practice directs and, you know, you get on scene and it's never what you think it's going to be. Never. And this was a, a great job of this crew by innovating and coming up with the best way to, to help these people. So Yeah, outside the box for sure. Yeah, uh, that's uh, cool. The crew for that was, uh, let's see, Lieutenant O'Neill, Lieutenant Ownby, 
Petty Officer Gaudet, Petty Officer Manson. That was the uh, Humboldt Bay crew. So sorry if I mispronounced your name there. Yeah. What? Uh, who was the North Bend uh, team that went out there too? Yeah. North Bend team was uh, Lieutenant Sanchez, Lieutenant J.G. Riley, Petty Officer Gessner, and Petty Officer Belial. Yeah. And we, we don't have the uh, names of the C-27 folks, but congrats. And, you know, great job, everybody. Um, a shout out to Air Station Savannah. Got this uh, this from a, a person coming through P Course, Abby Isaacs and Sam Ingham. Uh, pulled a gentleman and his dog off a beach uh, out in Savannah. The guy apparently was in a 14 foot skiff that swamped uh, during a small craft advisory. Ended up swimming an hour and a half, him and his dog, uh, to a deserted island. Um, his iPhone just happened to still work and he was able to call for help. So they flew out there. They actually landed on the beach, picked him up. Uh, I think it was Abby's first uh, actual uh, case in the right seat. So uh, great job on that. And then uh, I can't help but uh, give this guy a shout out. We actually have a Cutterman listening to our aviation podcast, which cracks me up. Uh, I think his name's Nick Martin. So, hey, Nick, if you're listening to this, man, stoked that you're, you're interested in it. This is, this is great stuff. All right, next up is Atlantic City. I don't know if anyone cares about AI intercepts, but I guess uh, they had two of them uh, in the same bag of gas, and that was uh, Lieutenant Commander Whiteman from Atlantic City, Lieutenant Commander uh, Richardson from NOLA, and Petty Officer Bogue from uh, Atlantic City. And uh, I don't know. Does anyone care about that stuff? Like, it's uh, like I mean, it's just our typical, some old old dude gets lost in his Cessna and we got to go intercept it's like him. like plain, plain police, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so other no- notable cases, they had a, a case where there's a vessel offshore, it's taken on water, their bilge pump fails. Uh, and the way the sea state and winds were, they actually had to face offshore so that their boat didn't uh, capsize. So Gila crew gets out there. They realize that they don't have the fuel and the weight to get all these people. So they start once again, looking at on scene initiative and how we can get these people off. There was a um, good Sam, a little fishing boat that was nearby. So they actually uh, directed that good Sam over. They deployed the swimmer down to the boat and swam uh, people uh, from the disabled vessel or the one that taken on water over to the good Sam. After uh, four evolutions of that, the swimmer's like, man, I'm, I'm pretty smoked yeah. and called for the basket. So the remaining two people got a basket and a Gila ride back to the air stay. All right, and uh, it's got Matt Swanner, Mark Zinderman was the co-pilot, Dave McLaren was the mech, and then Chris Wilson was the swimmer. So 6579 crew, great job. The other thing is a shout out to all you listeners here. I really appreciate your your interest in this podcast. We've uh, probably at the end of this episode about thirteen thousand downloads. So huge thank you for the support. Um, and we are always looking for ideas. So Sam Haffensteiner, Kenny Ingram, Ryan Vandehei, shoot us an email. Uh, we're looking for anything cool to talk about, SAR cases, interesting stories, anecdotes, all that kind of good stuff. So uh, really appreciate it. You know what really grinds my gears? No, but I don't see you coming up with anything. Why don't you get with the freaking program? And that, people, is what grinds my gears. All right, folks, uh, we got a new segment we're real interested in uh, and excited about sending out to you. Um, on the phone, we got Christian Rigney. How you doing, Christian? Uh, good morning, boys. I'm excellent up here in the Big D. Big D. Is it uh, iced over there up there yet, or you still got some warm weather? No, we're enjoying uh, beautiful Michigan summer no humidity not like uh you folks down there it's great Uh, come visit yeah i want to uh well as uh, many people know uh you and the coast guard you aren't afraid to uh hold your opinion and uh i'd like to know what's grinding your gearbox today there big rig 
That's a great question. Uh, I've got a few thoughts prepared, but uh, I'll let you know. You know what grinds my gearbox today? What's that? 951 boldface EPs. <laughs> I mean, for some unknown reason, there are uh, more boldface EPs than flight hours flown by Commander Sanborn. Yeah, that is. <laughs> That's true. Very true. Uh, there are more boldface EPs than pilots have uttered the words. Uh, I can't wait for my next P course. <laughs> I mean, we all know those stupid overachieving engineers, you know, they want to go down there. Oh, here's man. A, here's a good one. Yeah. There's more ball CCPs than pool toys saved in D9. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> we save a lot more pool toys in D9 than EPs. Your honesty is just impeccable, dude. I love it. Yeah, D9, sorry. You can't, uh, can't uh, go wrong with that. But uh, seriously, though, um, some rocket scientist probably looking at you, Commander Bill McComb decided any 65 driver is too dumb to maintain aircraft controls for the most of minute things. I mean, what idiot is not going to stabilize flight controls? <laughs> Especially when that SDR pops up on the status line. Oh, Seriously. you better. Oh, you better. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, as, as always, we, uh, we thank you for, uh, for your input, man. And, uh, uh, we're looking forward to hearing what grinds your gearbox again. Thanks big rig. Yes. No problem. You guys enjoy. All right, buddy. We'll see you. All right, Flight Suit Friday podcasters, we are excited you're here with us. Like I said, we got a great show. We have our very own Captain Holzer, ATC skipper. So, sir, welcome. Hey, thanks. It's uh, it's great to be here. You guys, you guys are doing great stuff here with the the Flight Suit Fridays. Um, yeah, yeah, I think you actually gave us our second uh, iTunes review. So that, now it's not only just Ryan's parents. Well, I was going to say it went it went Mom Vandy and then it went me. Uh, so no, I, I think uh, you guys are doing great stuff. I, I remember back to one of the earliest ones where Ben Walton talks about the campfire, and this is this is really taken over, especially during that whole bad COVID year of uh, of being our aviation campfire. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, you know, I obviously just took over hosting for Shakes when he left, but. It's amazing how many emails or someone will swing by the office and just be like, hey, I listen to your podcast and I learn stuff every time. You know, even civilians on base are coming up and saying that. So uh, I think it's great as well. Yeah. But, 50, uh, 55 people this morning checked in as students because we have a flight surgeon course going. Oh, yeah. And uh, some of the questions I always ask is, hey, who, who knows about Flight Suit Friday? And almost every hand went up. Wow. And then I you know, yelled at the three that didn't and talked to them afterwards. So. <laughs> Counsel them appropriately. Yeah. Thanks for being yeah. our biggest promoters. Yeah, yeah, you appreciate bet. it. All right. Well, uh, we normally like to start off with, uh, what are people drinking? So Skipper, uh, you got some, some sort of can over there. All right. So, uh, as a uh, long time listener and, and first time, uh, uh, interviewee, I, I actually brought you some of my, uh, my favorite beers. So yes. looking around the table, um, so, I'm from Pennsylvania originally, so I, I, I had to bring a Yangling Black and Tan. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that's that's up for grabs. Um, my favorite local ish is uh, it's a it's Wild Leap. It's uh, it's Alpha Abstraction. That's a double IPA, and that's uh, that's got some good hop to it. I really like that. And then and then Devil's Harvest makes a breakfast IPA that I, I think is wonderful. Um, and then, you know, lastly, I, I did bring a warm Miller light and that's, that's an ode to my, uh, my coast guard on wing. When I, when I started flying big iron here, um, uh, about uh, six months ago, that just right only drinks warm Miller lights. So, so wow. I brought one for him. Warm Miller light is just, oof. that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's just flat out bad. <laughs> yeah. Un unfortunately, Sam put me on the uh, schedule. So I am not uh, partaking in a, in a cold beverage, but I do have this, uh, iced dirty chai latte from one of the local uh, coffee places around here. 
But speaking of dirty, sir, can we talk about that mustache you got right now? Uh, yeah, let's dive into that thing. So, you know, usually we use words like glorious, inspirational. <laughs> uh, so my my wife, Leslie, and my daughter, Alex, are uh, they're at the shore for the summer. So uh, I was able to, you know, I, I can do what I want. I basically I have steak with a side of bacon for dinner and, uh, and, I'm, and I've got my Magnum PI uh, mustache going. So I'm sure that'll last about five minutes uh, in contact with the enemy when she gets home. Yeah. Very on Ron Swanson over here. This is yeah, great. Is that a, is that a permanent mustache you think, or is that a temporary? I, well, you can, you can check in with Leslie, like I said, about five minutes after she gets home. I <laughs> okay. Think that, uh, I think it might be gone. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with Mustache March, but there's actually a pretty cool story. Uh, I looked it up on Wikipedia, so of course it's true, but it's basically a uh, Vietnam era. There was a Colonel Robin Olds. He was a uh, triple ace and basically it, it became a kind of defiance to upper leadership in the Air Force for the grooming standards, but it just, it just grew and it grew and it just came into this like big handlebar wax thing and he kept it and all the young airmen loved it because he all they all thought he had a bulletproof mustache and so he kept coming back because he had this mustache so everyone was growing this mustache and it's pretty cool so if you want to look up where mustache march came from take take a look all right i definitely will well i assure you all of this is within coast guard policy (laughs) okay of course Uh, of course uh sir you want to give us a a background uh where you started what you've flown and yeah sure where you at now? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm an Academy guy, uh, and, uh, I went to a boat out of, uh, Boston, the Spencer. I got picked up for flight school, did San Francisco, did the Royal Canadian Air Force Exchange. Uh, in fact, Amanda did a great segment with you guys a month or two ago. Yeah. Uh, I, I listened to that. I just, I kind of like felt like I was back there in Comox. That was amazing. Uh, from there I asked for any air station in the Pacific Northwest cause Leslie and I love the mountains. And, uh, and then I enjoyed my next two years in Miami. Nice. So, uh, <laughs> thanks for the detailers there. Uh, actually I really enjoyed Miami. Uh, after Miami, um, I went to, uh, grad school, uh, to Harvard, to the Kennedy school. And, um, after that, uh, was the military aid for commandant, uh, mm-hmm. Admiral Papp. Uh, that was a, that was an amazing experience from there. Chief pilot ops and then XO at Houston, uh, from there, Marine Corps War College. Then I did my joint tour, went to uh, Northcom. I led a, a domestic uh, deployable sport teams. And then from there, I went to uh, what was probably one of my most demanding, but also most rewarding jobs out of aviation. That was a CG-13, and that's the chief of military policy. Mm-hmm. So all the, all the different military policies, like the grooming standards for this mustache. <laughs> that's sweet mustache. Um, and from there, this is, uh, this is kind of my reward for two years slugging in headquarters uh, is uh, to me the best job in the Coast Guard, ATC. That's great. Uh, so predominantly 65 pilot in your career. And uh, what are you flying now, sir? So yeah, 65s, I threw alphas through deltas and uh, actually have a little bit of time in the echo here. Uh, and uh, when I when I got here, I uh, you know, I went to the different communities and I was like, all right, you know, 65 folks, what, what should I fly? And all, you know, all you guys are like, come on, skipper, come back to the 65. It's going to feel great. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, that, that feels pretty good. And I went to the 60 folks and I was like, all right, 60s, you know, what, what, what should I do? And they all start like flexing, you know, a couple of them are like ripping their flight suits open. They're like, big iron. <laughs> I was like, all right, that, yeah, that feels pretty good too. And then I go to the 144 uh, folks and I was like, all right guys, you know, what should I fly? And they're like, I don't know, maybe 60. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love the, I love the Casa folks here. Um, you know, we're struggling with just like anybody else, you know, we've got like 0.7 landings allowed for every takeoff and stuff. So, 
Um, which, I, which I think is funny. We used to laugh at the Casas about landing limitations, and we just recently learned that the 65 main gearbox actually has some landing limitations. Right. So, no. yeah, right. we can't make fun of the Casas, at least for that. Yeah. We can still make fun for other yeah, stuff. There's a, there's a host of other reasons. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, God God bless them. Um, uh, that that was actually a, a primary co of mine. But where I landed on the 60 was um, I was afraid to go back in the 65 because I left it as a flight examiner ops and XO, you know, a couple thousand hours. I love that helicopter. Mm -hmm. I would still want to feel like I've got that level of proficiency and expertise. And I knew I wouldn't on 10 or 11 hours a month. So I figured I'd go to the 60, I'd be a good co-pilot flying with some rockstar IPs and, uh, and just enjoy having a, an AC that I'm flying with. That's, that's one of my guys or gals and, and let them take the lead. So don't, don't hold back on us. Now that you've flown both, what do you like better? All right, I tell you what, this is a tough question. I knew it was going to come. Yep. Um, the 65 takes a very astute pilot to fly it well. Yeah. The 60 is built to to go and get handled rough. It's forgiving. Um, so I you know, it's it's really a toss up. I can't say I like either one better. I will say that the sixty five is much less forgiving of an aircraft than the H sixty. I th I think I heard a little subtle sixty five pilots are better than sixty pilots, right? I heard it. Yeah, I thought I heard that too. You didn't say it outright, but um Oh, I had one I had another question along those same lines. Are you the only O six in the Coast Guard that is uh, duck qualified? Cause that's what, that's how you're flying with us now. Yeah, it is. And, uh, and you know, I, I desperately wanted to fly with all the different folks here. And I think as you guys remember when I showed up, I said, all right, quarterly, I'm going to fly left seat in the, in the Delta or the echo because I want to stay in touch with each community. But then it became obvious to me really quick that I would be robbing you an IP of like that IP IP proficiency flight. And here at ATC, we're down to, you know, sometimes single digit hours per month. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't stomach that. So I figured well, what I can do is I can get duck qualified. That way I can still be in the plane, be part of the crew. Um, I don't know if I'm the only 06. I know Scott Langham did it uh, and he just retired from Cape Cod uh, okay. last Friday. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I actually got to go out uh, last week uh, with John Claridge, who was my AST3, yeah. on Friday. And then Saturday, he proposed to Victoria Vander Hayden, uh, the Mickpog's daughter. Really? Yep. Yeah, I got a text around two o'clock that said, uh, she said yes. <laughs> oh, congrats so, to him. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. All right, well, I think you know we're talking about the reduction of flight hours, and I think it's on everyone's mind. So it's probably a good segue into, hey, reduction of program flight hours, at least for the sixty-five side. Oh, by the way, we're we're asking you to learn a new aircraft. Where do you think the Coast Guard is going from like a strategic level of, hey, we we know we have we've identified this big problem. Um, we don't have great solutions right now. So, hey, operational commanders, um, I, I need to hear from you guys. How, how do we solve this? So, sir, if you if you had a magic wand, um, what where do you think we're going? So, yeah, complex question there with a lot of sides. Um, you know, the, the Coast Guard is on record that the H-60 is the, that's the rotary wing aircraft that'll take us, uh, you know, into and through the 2030s until the the future of vertical lift is has been determined a lot, you know, a lot by DOD forging the way forward. Um, now the, the venerable H 65 is going to have to carry us to 2030. You know, we, I think we have 97 or 98 of them, uh, left in the inventory and what you're going to see around the country is you will see units flip essentially from orange to white as we slowly draw down the H 65 presence. So you saw it in Traverse city already. Barinkin is swapping this summer. There's already two H sixties in Barinkin. 
Uh, NOLA will switch next summer. Uh, it's a little unsure after NOLA. Uh, Alaska would be a good uh, bet, maybe Ventura uh, for the next uh, the next one. But these 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 H65s are not going away. They're being removed from the unit that they're at, and they'll essentially travel around the country. Uh, some will end up at ALC, and they'll be donor aircraft. But really, uh, we're going to end up in the 2030s where the the H-65 will be a standalone mission in the NCR doing the uh, the air defense mission there. Mm-hmm. Uh, somewhere between 10 and 50, uh, 15 of them stationed in uh, Hangar 14. That'll be an 06 command. And part of that is that you'll see Atlantic City come down to an 05 command, uh, likely a New Orleans model as of today, you know, kind of a B-2, B-0, that type of thing. So that's the landscape, Kenny, and that didn't answer your question. Uh, that's the typical dance around it, so you can think of the <laughs> that's answer. Right. Right? That's a good politician. Uh, over there. But no, the um, but but the answer is it, it is no joke that that we are seeing an all time low of flight hours flown per uh, month per pilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fleet average is somewhere around fifteen sixteen, as we all know from the thirty seven ten. It tells us twenty to twenty five is the right number to fly. Um, of course that's dependent, you know, I mean, I'm sitting around the room here with a bunch of instructor pilots. You don't need 25 hours to be proficient mm-hmm. in my estimation. This is anecdotal. This is Chris only. You need probably about 15, 16, something like that. If they're well-placed hours, that's not 15 to 16 sitting next to a student where you haven't touched the controls, you know, mm-hmm. except for about 10 minutes during it. Um, so where does that leave us? The part that we can't control is the flight hours coming at your unit. That's, that's outside of our sphere of influence. So what can we control? If you look at the triangle of proficiency, ATC owns one leg, the unit owns one leg, and the member owns one leg. Um, ATC owns things like P courses, stand visits, AV stand visits, and then the syllabi that, that go out to the fleet. The unit owns the flying program, and then the member owns what's done with every flight hour in it. So what I would argue, if you look at a lot of the Royal Air Force uh, research from the 1990s when they brought the Merlin on board, is when they were down to about 10 hours a month, what they were doing is they were increasing the frequency of sorties and decreasing the flight hours. So if they only get 10 hours a month, instead of flying five sorties of two hours, they're flying seven of like 1.6, 1.7. I, I can't do math like that on the radio, but- Public yeah, math is tough. Yeah, yeah. public yeah. math. Um, but uh, but th- th- that's the concept there. The other part is, you know, when you think about it, if you get seven sorties out of it, that's seven times you prepared for a flight, and seven times you've yeah. you've debriefed from a flight. So those 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 uh, the bread in that sandwich really counts. It, ma- it makes a difference. Um, on ATC side, that's why I fought so ferociously. We fought so ferociously last July and August to turn all those proficiency anchors back on. Um, if you were to plot someone's proficiency curve, if you kind of move left to right on a graph. Nobody just remains at a nine or a 10 out of 10 of proficiency their whole year. There's ebbs and flows. There's, there's valleys and peaks. A peak would be coming here to P course. A peak would be receiving a stand visit at your unit. A peak would be upgrading from FP to AC. What happens when you take three of those peaks away? There's no P course. There's no stand visit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and let's say it's not a year that you're upgrading. Woo, that's, that's a valley, right? That's why we had to turn those back on. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm eternally grateful to Carl Reedland, you know, one of our titans of aviation, uh, Admiral Ray, uh, because, you know, when we briefed this in July or August to turn back on those proficiency anchors, um, you know, the phrase that we rallied behind was, I would rather deal with COVID-related travel restrictions and training challenges than to deal with um, salvage plans and, and funeral details. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that's, that's been achieved. Do you see... Um 
uh, especially with the reduction of flight hours down to, like you said, the average of about 15, uh, a need to either increase people's time at a unit to be able to continue to progress to FP and AC with the minimum hours the 3710 requires or uh, potentially having a waiver. Because sometimes, you know, you might not hit that hour mark until you're at like three, three and a half years right. at the unit and then boom, you're an AC, you stand five duties and you've moved to your second tour. Yeah. And that, you know, that's, that's a neat idea that would accomplish that in the short term. Um, here's the challenge with that second and third, uh, order effects. If you take two officers that are up for 04 at their 10 year mark, one has been to, uh, flight school and one unit or coming up for 05 and they've been to a flight school in two units. Mm -hmm. How's that officer competing against a cutterman who's been to, uh, you know, their accession program, three different afloat tours, grad school, and a staff payback. Mm -hmm. um, so in general, I'm not a fan of people extending past four years on their on their air station tours for officer progression. Mm -hmm. That That doesn't answer your question about proficiency in upgrading the aircraft when, you know, it might take longer to get up there. Maybe we need to relook at the hours mm -hmm. uh, at which we upgrade people. You know, we, we talk a big game here about pushing authority and responsibility down as low as we can in the organization. You know, the hours that we offered to create pilots, maybe some of them need to be done more in the simulator. Maybe a, maybe a day needs to be added to the P course for people to get quality training mm -hmm. in these wonderful simulators that we have that are good flight hour replacements. Uh, at lower cost and lower risk. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a lot of ways to attack that one. Yeah. Uh, Neil Corbin wrote a great article in the last Glide Slope magazine. Uh, it, uh, it talks about flight hours and uh, you know a stark reminder that when you fall below that 11.8 per month or over the last 30 days, your your chance of a mishap goes up significantly. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I think it's um, just like what you were saying, post-COVID, just being able to get together as a wardroom and share stories, I think is, I, I've, I've noticed a difference where you go around the room and it's like, Hey, I did something stupid the other day. Here's what happened. Um, I, that's what sharpens us. And I think it's good to feel that back again on, on top of the, some of these, you know, upper level strategic stuff that you're yeah, talking about. That's, that's the campfire, right? And the campfire, uh, save flight suit Fridays, uh, has has kind of not been allowed for the last year and a half, and mm -hmm. and little things like that, not not little things, big things like that, are not things that you thought of when we thought about some of the effects of COVID. Is that sharing, that vicarious learning? Um, you know, our community is great about coming back and saying, "Man, I had the best intentions, and then I, you know, a string of events happened, and I screwed up big time." And we're a very forgiving community because we know that by sharing that, it's going to save someone's life. Mm -hmm. Maybe not even tomorrow, maybe five years down the line uh, once that person's an aircraft commander. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I made a big mistake the other day. I'm a day land flight. So second flight for this student, second time ever being in the 65 and we're setting up for this airport, you know, non-towered. And I flipped, flopped the runways and there was someone departing the runway and I said, I'm coming in. And he's like, uh, I think you mean the other runway, right? We're, we're set up <laughs> the other opposite traffic, you know, like <laughs> you're a hundred percent right. And I'm so glad you felt comfortable to speak up. And, you know, now I can go back and, and share that. As was that a, a student? It was a student. That, okay. So that's a win right there, Kenny. Uh, that's the culture that you guys are creating where a student feels, you know, a student with 214 hours feels comfortable speaking up. Yeah. And he did. It was, it was great. Uh, it was Absolutely fantastic to check grad complete. Yeah, 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 great. yeah so, you win. <laughs> you win. Yeah, uh, yeah. So we've heard rumors too. Uh, speaking of you know students coming out of flight school, that that timeline might change a little bit. Do you know anything about that, sir? 
Yeah. So right now they're looking at an average time to train of about two and a half years. Uh, my guess is for you guys, uh, lieutenants, lieutenant commanders, it was probably shy of two. Yeah. Like right? 20, maybe 22 months. Yeah. Like that. So for me, it was about 16, 18 months. Uh, and I actually, and I was a little bit on the longer side. Uh, most of some of my classmates were like 13 month graduates. Holy cow. Um, that was back in the late nineties. We were, you know, still sending people off to the sandbox. Um, but uh, I, I would offer this if if it does creep longer, which some of the forecasts are that it will creep as long as three years, we need to look at how aviators are going to fare at the lieutenant board. Because when you if you do the math out, you graduate from OCS or the academy, whatever have you, you go to flight school for three years. If you check in then to your new unit, you might have one OER. Yeah. And And in some cases, if you do the timing wrong, you might have one OER that's not even a full period. Um, so that's that's an awareness within the aviation community of what that first OER needs to say. And something that I'm talking, we, we have a, a great advocate now that just checked in as the liaison officer in Pensacola, uh, Jackie Gleason, Captain mm-hmm. Eric Gleason. And um, he's looking at that as well. It's like, what does the doings OER need to say? Mm-hmm. Perhaps it needs to say more than just, you know, like the, the, the nothing burgers that our doings OERs are right now. Yeah. Yeah, because... It- that, that individual may be an absolute rock star pilot, the best officer, but they just can't capture it. And like you said, you're going up for a board. That's just not a good way to say, hey, come join aviation. Uh, we'll get four years out of you, get passed over. And thanks thanks for your time, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it would not be a good uh, return on investment for the amount of money that it costs to go to flight school if that happened. No, that's right. I mean, you have, you have million dollar products that could be at risk at the O3 board. Yeah, so an, another rumor uh, is apparently the the cost of flight training is this new contract. They went with the uh, the Leonardo that Correct. the Navy went with. Yeah, so apparently there's some talk of hey that that cost being double, maybe even triple on initial estimates, uh, and people are saying, hey, could could we use the Army? Is that a viable option that we're Coast Guard is looking at? Well, I'll tell you what, um, if we don't look at every possibility, then we're not doing our service, uh, any service, right? Pun, pun intended. Um, that new helicopter is a wonderful helicopter. It's just like the Texan upgrade that the Navy uh, got on the fixed wing side and that, you know, there used to be a huge uh, lag between what a student graduated with in terms of technology requirements for use in the fleet to mm-hmm. what they were training on. They were training on steam gauges and then they were going to, you know, Darth Vader's bathroom when they got to their, their FRS, uh, or if they got to, <laughs> you know, T course mm-hmm. and, and, and now with the Texan, they're good, but then they go back down to steam gauges when they go to the TH 57. So, uh, with the new Leonardo product, um, they'll be back in a Texan-like environment in glass cockpit, CAS, you know, the, the whole nine yards there. So so that's a good thing. Um, the cost, though, you know, the Navy is basically a LLC in, in flight school. They, they have a cost to train a pilot, and then they pass that on to the different tenants or different user groups that, that come to Navy flight school. So whether it's uh, the Saudis or the Coasties, it, we're simply a group that participates in Navy flight school, and mm-hmm. we pay the we pay the pay the price. Um, there are ways to buy back some risk of, of cost overruns. Like for instance, back in my day in the late nineties, early two thousands, we used to do aerobatics. Uh, my understanding now is that we've cut that segment out at the cost savings of three flights or whatever that is. I think they put it back in. I did know they for a while back they in? did. I okay. think they, I they think cut it for me and then okay. I think it came back in. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's things like that. It's, it's our, our ask to them is what's all a cart that we can pull out and save some money. But you know, I caution against that because 
we all need to be cut from the same fabric. We're all military aviators. And, and if you take little pieces of that away, you got to be really careful about what are you pulling out of the culture? What are you pulling out of the, of our belongingness to that group? Mm-hmm. So you asked about U.S. Army training at, at Fort Rucker. Um, the Air Force just graduated their first uh, rotary wing only pilots from Mother Rucker. And I think that uh, that that could be an interesting model to pursue. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's above my pay grade. Uh, you know, I'll participate in groups that discuss it, but my thought there is is that everything should be looked at. Um, you bring a lot of questions to the table at that point. That you know, we're all sitting here wearing naval aviator wings on our chest. What do you wear when you come out of Rucker? Mm. You know, I'm, hey, that's that's something that's easy to fix. It's but it's not just a patch. It's a, it's a heritage, you know, we're, we're part of the naval aviation tradition, but at the same token, we got to be part of the Coast Guard aviation future. And, and there might be some different ways of doing business. I'd be open to exploring all of them. Yeah. That would definitely be a major culture shift in, in where we're going. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Hey everybody, quick producer note, this conversation somehow accidentally ran very long because we just got in a rhythm, got in a flow. So we're going to cut this first episode here and Tune in in a couple of weeks to get the back half of this episode. Really excited. Maybe hear a story of how Kevin Holzer almost maybe got stuck in a car. So it'll be a good one. Tune in and we'll see you all next time. <laughs>